This evening we're going to spend our time contemplating the Great Commission of Christ Jesus. And just to be clear, it'll help you to know that the Great Commission of Christ, it encompasses everything from evangelism to the discipleship of believers. And so for the sake of our study this evening, we're just going to spend our time just focusing in uh, on the spiritual discipline of evangelism, all the while realizing that the Great Commission continues on with the discipleship of believers. But the spiritual discipline of evangelism is the first step in accomplishing the Great Commission because it's through the the discipline of evangelism that we lead an unbeliever to Christ uh, so that they can be a born-again believer who is then water baptized and engaging in discipleship. And so with this as the goal and, and, and with our focus on evangelism, it'll help you to know that every believer has actually been commissioned to preach the gospel message by which sinners are saved from the wrath of God. We've all been called Christian to preach the gospel message. Preaching the gospel and engaging in evangelism isn't something that some other Christian is supposed to do, but not me. You know, some other Christian is supposed to be doing it also, but, but so are we. Like, the, you know, it is our calling, it's our commission to go and preach the gospel. And, and, and knowing that we've all been called to evangelize unbelievers according to the leading of the Lord, we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking, am I? Am I actually accomplishing the Great Commission? Now, with this as the goal, I want to consider this commission that Christ Jesus presented. It's found in the last chapter of Matthew's gospel account. And so if you would, let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Here we find the Lord Jesus presenting his disciples with the Great Commission. As you make your way to the 28th chapter of Matthew's gospel account, I just want to take a moment to consider some stats regarding Christians and the spiritual discipline of evangelism. You might not know this, but there's a growing trend within the 21st century church, which is leading many to believe that evangelistic endeavors no longer are an acceptable way for Christians to interact with unbelievers. As a matter of fact, there's one poll from 2018 that reveals this, that 47% of the millennials in the church believe that it's wrong to proselytize a person from another faith. Not just that they're unwilling to do it, but they actually, 47% of millennials in the church think it's wrong to try to convert someone from one religion to Christianity. And, and this number is absolutely staggering. It's, it's I'm guessing, 50% by now. But, uh, but listen, what this means is that nearly half of the believers from this generation known as the millennials are actually opposed to evangelism. The same aversion to evangelism is also shared by 27% of Gen Xers, 19% of boomers, and 20% of elders. As for Generation Z, well, 70, 76% of Gen Zers are willing to share their personal testimony, and yet at the same time, 74% said that they're ready to discuss uh, the, you know, the, the, the personal benefits of saving faith, uh, and, and that sounds good, but, but listen, at the same time, 59% of Gen Zers, they you know, aren't really ready to use Bible verses in their evangelistic endeavors. And, and listen, 83% of them think that evangelism has more to do with our actions than it has to do with our words. In other words, 83% of Gen Zers have mistakenly embraced the belief that evangelism or the Great Commission can be accomplished 
without preaching the gospel message. Uh, Imagine that for a a moment here. 83% of the Gen Zers who answered this poll have mistakenly embraced the belief that the Great Commission can be accomplished apart from preaching the gospel message. Clearly, uh, they are wrong about this. Now, as we consider these statistics, it's my hope that this study today will help us to see that Christ Jesus is actually calling every Christian to become evangelists. And not only that, but he's calling us to become effective evangelists by learning how to proclaim the gospel of grace by which sinners can be saved. And with this as the focus, let's turn our attention now to the final verses of Matthew chapter 28. Here we find Jesus. He's presenting his disciples with the Great Commission. And if you would look with me here, beginning in the middle of verse 18, here our risen Savior declares this. He says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. And here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus. He's presenting his disciples with these final instructions before ascending into heaven. And we should notice that this isn't called the great suggestion. You know, it's, it's called the great commission. We've been commissioned by Christ to accomplish this calling. And just to be clear about this, the word commission, you know, it refers to a unified mission. This is our mission. It's a co-mission. We are to work together in a unified way uh, to then lead unbelievers to the Lord. This is a unified mission that the Lord has given to every single Christian. And what this means then is that the Lord has commanded every Christian to enter the mission field so that we can go and make disciples of all the nations. Notice again there in verse 19, there he says, Go therefore. Go therefore. He says, All authority is mine. Go, therefore. The Lord Jesus was the first person to say, let's go. And that's what we should do. This command to go is a commission that he's actually given to every single Christian. And and therefore, it's our unified mission. and, And it's a godly goal. This is the godly goal of every Christian. To go. To help every unbeliever within our sphere of influence to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. In order to further grasp the nature of our commission, we should consider Mark's gospel account. It's actually in Mark chapter 16, verse 15. There the Lord Jesus says this. He says, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now, uh, don't go home and and start evangelizing your dogs or anything like that. Like that's, That's not what we're talking about. The church has been called to go and make disciples by first presenting every person with the gospel of grace. And the reason why? Well, it's because the gospel of Christ is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes it. Think about that for a moment. Within the gospel message of grace, we find the power of God. How much power is that? Well, it's all power. God's all powerful, right? And within the gospel of grace... We find the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And in order to further grasp the importance of preaching this powerful gospel message, I want to turn in our Bibles now to Ephesians chapter 1. 
And as you make your way to the first chapter of Ephesians, I just want to take a moment to point out that the great commission of Christ Jesus, it must be centered around the gospel message. And while this calling could also include social aid for impoverished people around the world, it's important for us to realize that, listen, we can dig a million wells and feed a billion babies and still fail to accomplish the great commission of Christ Jesus. We can accomplish all the most wonderful social aid works in the world, all the while failing to actually lead these people that we're helping to the most important decision that any person could ever make, which is to trust in Jesus Christ according to the gospel of grace. Please trust me when I tell you that people don't become disciples of Christ until they receive the gospel message of grace. And I want to consider how Paul puts it here in Ephesians chapter 1. You would look with me there beginning at verse 13. Here Paul declares, In him you also trusted, when? After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Now here in these verses, we find Paul, he's reminding the Christians there in Ephesus about their conversion to the Christian faith. And if you want to know more about the time that Paul spent there in Ephesus, we can read Luke's account about this, which is found in Acts chapter 19. It's there in Acts 19 where we learn about the way that, that, that the Lord was using Paul to accomplish many great things there in Ephesus. And, and he supernaturally healed many sick, sick people there by the power of the Lord. And, and yet it's here in his letter to the church in Ephesus where Paul reminds his readers that eternal salvation is experienced by those who believe the gospel of grace. That's when a person is saved, when they hear the gospel of grace and believe it. And in light of this, it's important for us to understand that the missionaries who are out there providing social aid without presenting the gospel message are actually failing to accomplish the great commission of Christ Jesus. And it's sad to say that this is more common than you might imagine. I remember interacting with a missionary from Morocco who was there teaching English. He was helping people learn English. And when I talked to him about his evangelistic endeavors at a coffee shop there in, in where's is it, he uh, basically hushed me. He hushed me because he didn't want me, you know, mentioning the name of Jesus there in that coffee shop. And I'm like, well, why are you here? If, if, if you're here just to help people learn English, you know, don't call yourself a missionary. Call yourself an English teacher. That's all you are. But he, he wasn't preaching the gospel. It was all hushed tones and we can't talk about Jesus or else I'm going to get kicked out of the country. I'd rather him get kicked out of the country for preaching the gospel message than for staying in the country 20 years just teaching English classes. We have to preach the gospel message so that people might be saved. The missionaries who provide social aid without presenting the gospel message are failing to accomplish the great commission of Christ Jesus. And the reason why is because it's the gospel message that has the power to save. Sadly, there are many churches that have embraced the social gospel, which is typically centered around the goal of pro providing help for impoverished people in other areas of the world, and, and oftentimes apart from the clear presentation 
of the gospel message. Listen, the social gospel is typically summed up with the ridiculous slogan, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. Listen, this pervasive platitude just gets right up underneath my fingernails. And it's incorrectly attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. And, and, and you know, we don't really know, you know who originated this, this, uh, this slogan, this illogical idea. But listen, it's based on the belief that a Christian missionary can preach the gospel with just good works. That a person can go out and just do good works, and that's gospel enough. What these people fail to realize is that it's the gospel message. It's the gospel message that brings sinners to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's for this reason that the Lord Jesus calls us to present people with an explicit explanation of the gospel message. I'll remind you, Jesus was perfectly clear when he commanded every Christian to go into all the world and preach. That's what he said. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now, please don't misunderstand my point because I'm certainly not opposed to people providing financial aid for those who are in need. That, that certainly can be a part of the outreach. You know, there's been times when we've gone and, and engaged in good works, you know, helping clean up after disasters, you know, whether it be, um, you know, in Louisiana or Oklahoma, the two places where disasters tend to, tend to happen, you know, but, uh, but going and helping with cleanup projects and rebuilding stuff and all, all that is great, provided that we're also providing these people with the gospel message. Christian missions can be accomplished with social aid, most certainly, and yet Christian missions cannot be accomplished until the gospel message is being presented. To further grasp my point, we should consider the challenge that the Lord Jesus presents in John chapter 6. And so if you would, let's turn in our Bibles now to the 6th chapter of John's gospel account. And as you make your way to John chapter 6, I just want to take a moment to remind you about the miraculous ministry of the Lord Jesus. You see, Jesus was someone who provided medical care. He healed many people. He healed all the people that were brought to him with infirmities. He healed them. He, he, he you know, healed people of different diseases. He cast out demons from, from demoniacs. The Lord Jesus also fed hungry people. He provided bread for those who were hungry, and yet Jesus was also very clear that we're saved when we believe in the words that he spoke, specifically the words of the gospel message. I want to consider how Jesus puts it here in the final verses of John chapter 6. If you would, look with me there beginning at verse 63. It's there beginning at verse 63 where Jesus declares, It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Here in these verses, we find many people turning away from Jesus. And, and it would appear that some of these guys had been his disciples or people who had been following him. And once they heard something that they didn't really care for, 
well, they turned away from him. They, they didn't really believe his doctrine. They, they were witnesses of his mighty miracles. They had been with him when he healed people. And, you know, many of them had been the recipients of his healing touch. And, you know, many of these people had probably received food and, and, and social aid of that sort. And, and yet after cashing in on all of his social helps, they still chose here to reject the gospel message that he was preaching, and they turned away from him. And what this means is that a person can receive all the social aids from the Christian missionaries who go out with all these sorts of helps, and they they can take part in all of these programs and receive these aids, and yet still end up in hell having rejected the gospel message. We should also notice that Jesus poses uh, an important question beginning, beginning there at verse 67. Jesus turns to the 12 here and says, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Here in these verses, we find Peter, he's referring to the message that the Lord Jesus had been presenting. And he says that these are the words of, of eternal life. And and in light of this, listen, it's important for us to understand that, again, missionaries can dig a million wells and vaccinate a billion babies and still fail to accomplish the great commission of Christ Jesus. That being the case, I want to make sure that our missionary endeavors here at Calvary South Austin are actually centered around the great commission that Jesus presented when he commanded every Christian to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now, in light of this command, we must not fail to realize that every Christian has been called to the mission field. You might not know that, but it's true. Every Christian has been called to the mission field. Therefore, uh, we do well to ask, where is my mission field? With this question in mind, let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Here we find the Lord Jesus. He's elaborating on the Great Commission. And as you make your way to the first chapter of Acts, I just want to take a moment to address those who incorrectly insist that the mission field must be somewhere overseas, like somewhere in the 1040 window of the world, or, or we have to go to Ukraine in the middle of a war zone and, and, and you know, preach the gospel there. And you know, Listen, it's possible that the Lord Jesus may call some of us to serve as missionaries in some foreign, far-off land, and yet... We must also understand that we're standing on the mission field every single day right here in Austin, Texas. And I want to consider how the Lord puts it here in Acts chapter 1. If you would look with me there beginning at verse 6. Here Luke tells us uh, that when they had come together, they asked him saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me. Where? Well, in Jerusalem. That's where these guys were. In Jerusalem first, and then in all Judea, and then Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. The Lord Jesus here is presenting his disciples with these final instructions before ascending to God the Father. And as we consider these divine directions, we must not fail to realize that the Lord's plan for accomplishing world missions began in the city where the disciples were already located. 
And in light of this, it's my belief that every Christian has been called to accomplish the Great Commission beginning right in the place where we receive the gospel of grace. This is our Jerusalem, so to speak. And so let's begin here. And then if the Lord wants us to go to, you know, our Judea, you know, which I guess, what is that, Travis County? And then our Samaria, which is, I guess, the rest of Texas, and then to the ends of the earth. Wherever the Lord calls us, of course, but listen, if you're looking for some call from the Lord for, for some far-off place where you might one day go, and I don't know, he's calling us today to accomplish missions here, here in Austin, Texas. Before we set out to reach the ends of the earth, we should set out to reach our own backyard. The people within our sphere of influence. We're called to reach the people here within our city limits and, and, and then so on and so forth as the Lord leads. Simply put, listen, every Christian is already living on the mission field. Remember, this is not our home. We're just sojourners passing through. So this is our mission field. This is where we're called to engage in evangelism. And so rather than thinking about the mission field as some scary place on the other side of the planet, you know, I, I encourage you to realize that the mission field is the school where you're receiving your education or the mission field is the place of employment where we you know, work more hours than we probably want to. The mission field is the sphere of influence that we already have here in our city, whether in person or maybe online. Every relationship with unbelievers that we have, these are the people that the Lord is wanting us to reach. This is the example that the disciples demonstrated in Acts chapter 5. It's verse 42 where Luke writes this, And daily in the temple and in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ whether it was in the temple there in Jerusalem or any house they entered into, they didn't cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They were reaching the people there in Jerusalem. And it's my hope that we too will realize that we are living on the mission field today. This was precisely the point that the Lord Jesus was making in John chapter 4. It's there where he declares this. He says, do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. They are already white for harvest. Simply put, listen, if you're looking for, forward to some future mission field, if you're thinking, well, maybe one day when I retire, I can go do missions work. Jesus would say, lift up your eyes right now. <laughs> look, at the, look at the harvest all around you today. You know, the, the future will take care of itself. And whether we're to remain in Austin or, or go to some you know, forsaken place of the world, you know, the Lord will let us know. But what about today? What about the, the harvest that's happening today? Are we concerned about the unbelievers within our sphere of influence today? We don't even know if we have it tomorrow. 
What about the unbelievers that we know today? Are we reaching them? Sadly, most Christians are uncomfortable, to say the least, when it comes to sharing their faith. And one reason why is because they don't know how to respond to those who are quick to challenge our profession of faith. And knowing that there will be those who will want to argue about our commitment to Christ Jesus, well, the Apostle Peter instructs every Christian to learn how to defend the faith so that we can offer every unbeliever a reasonable response for why we believe what we believe. And with this as the focus, I'd like you to make your way to 1 Peter chapter 3. And as you make your way to the third chapter of 1 Peter, I just want to take a moment to remind you that Peter was actually living in a day and an age when the followers of Christ were being persecuted for their faith. And while this is true in many areas of the world today, we can rejoice that you know, here in America at least we're not you know, being persecuted to that degree. But listen, Peter himself was put to death and for no other reason than for committing the high crime of preaching the gospel message of Jesus Christ. With this historic context in mind, I want to consider what the Apostle Peter wrote here as he wrote to those who were concerned about the persecution that they would experience if they started sharing their faith. And if you would look with me here beginning at verse 15, because here Peter declares, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Always be ready. As we consider the challenge that Peter here is presenting, we must not lose sight of the historic context. I'll remind you here, Peter's writing to a group of Christians who were being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. And while this persecution began with the marginalization of these believers, followed by the criminalization of the Christian faith, well, it wasn't long before the first century believers were being martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. According to a historian named Tacitus, the early Christians were, and I quote here, killed by dogs by having the hides of beasts attached to them. Or they were nailed to crosses or set aflame, and when the daylight passed away, they were used as nighttime lamps. Imagine. Imagine the horror of being set on fire simply because you shared your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, many Christians were given the opportunity to save themselves by recanting their faith and pledging their allegiance to Caesar and these sorts of things. But Peter encouraged them, no, no, you just be ready. When they come and want to know why you're not recanting your faith, you be ready with a reasonable response to their questions about the hope that's within you. Notice again in verse 15, here again Peter declares, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, uh, the Greek word here rendered asks, it, it carries with it the idea of an interrogation. And it's for this reason the scholars who created the Revised Standard Version, they render the original Greek in this way, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you. As we consider this statement in light of the historic context, it seems to me that Peter here is referring to the questions of interrogators who were probably wondering why these believers were unwilling to recant their faith in Jesus Christ and thereby you know, saving themselves here in this world. 
It's also possible that Peter was referring to the questions which were, would be posed by the unbelieving prisoners who may have been sharing the same cell. Imagine for a moment that you know, you're a hardened career criminal sitting in a first century prison. You're awaiting your trial, knowing that you're guilty. And next thing you know, you know there's, there's another prisoner placed in your cell and you learn that their only crime is that they're a Christian. And then you discover that they could actually secure their own freedom by simply recanting their faith in Christ Jesus, and yet that Christian is refusing to do that. How would you begin to process that as a hardened criminal that this other person could just get sprung from the pokey, so to speak, and, and all they got to do is you know, deny their faith in Jesus Christ? I have no doubt that a criminal like that sitting in a prison cell next to a Christian in this context would want to know why the Christian is ready to lose their life for their faith in Jesus Christ. If it were me, I would have some questions for that individual. And as we consider this scenario, we can rejoice in knowing you know, that Christians aren't being put in this position yet here in America. We have the freedom to worship the Lord here tonight at, at, our, at our church and you know, there's no fear of arrest or execution as we leave the building tonight. Might get accosted by homeless people, but that's another issue. But we have freedoms here in America right now, and that's, uh, that's a beautiful thing. And yet this is not to suggest that there are no temptations to deny our faith in Jesus Christ in order to avoid, you know, if nothing else, the, uh, you know, the, the people who might make fun of us or, or might persecute us with, you know, mockings and tauntings. And with that, I, I want to ask, you know, if you're hanging out with unbelievers who are making fun of Jesus, do you step up and defend your faith or do you simply remain silent for fear of persecution? If your coworkers are constantly promoting antichrist propaganda, do you challenge those attacks on the Christian faith with facts or do you just remain silent for fear of being fired for your faith? Are you a Christian who has taken on a let's go along to get along mentality or are you actually out there preaching the gospel according to our great commission? With these questions in mind, I want to remind you of the encouragement that the Apostle Peter presents here in this verse. It's 1 Peter 3.15. He says, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Set God apart in your hearts. Put him first in your heart. And then be ready. Be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. That phrase which is rendered give a defense. It comes from the Greek word apologia. And, and this actually is the Greek basis for our term apologetics, which refers to a reasoned statement or argument, which is given in defense of an idea or a belief. And simply put, Peter here is encouraging every Christian to learn how to defend our faith against the unreasonable arguments of those who are trying to tear it down. That being the case, we should take a moment to examine our own lives by asking this, am I ready? Am I ready every day to give a reasonable defense 
for why I believe what I believe. Am I ready to give a reasonable explanation for why I'm willing to suffer the trials of mockings at the very least for the sake of the gospel? Am I able to defend my faith against the arguments of those who attack the hope that I have in Christ Jesus? Am I prepared to present a reasoned response to those who are asking tough questions about the empirical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if the answer is no to, to these questions, you know, uh, if you're not ready to defend your faith, then you know, it's really time for you to step up and become a student of Christian apologetics. And just for the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that Christian apologetics can actually be broken down into six different categories. This includes biblical apologetics, theological apologetics, philosophical experiential, cultural, and scientific apologetics. These are the six different categories of Christian apologetics. And, and while we don't have time to examine the entirety uh, of this important subject tonight, it'll help you to know that these six categories can further be broken down into subtopics, each of which are focused on addressing the arguments that are uh, put forth against the Christian faith. And listen, I'm here to tell you there are strong apologetic arguments that address all of the arguments that have been presented against the Christian faith. If you're of the mindset that if you go out and try to defend your faith, you're going to be easily owned, uh, that's not the case at all for the Christian who has spent time studying Christian apologetics. Because listen, the reason is on our side, the, the evidence is on our side, everything is on our side when it comes to the rational reasons for our faith. There are powerful apologetic arguments that provide us with empirical evidence and rational reasons which establish our faith in the facts of reality. And it's for this reason that every believer ought to spend time studying Christian apologetics because it makes us more secure in our faith. Now I praise the Lord that we're able to come to Christ with a mustard seed size amount of faith. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that it is that simple. I, I'm just, you know, thrilled that the Lord is so gracious that it just takes a little bit of faith to be saved. And yet we shouldn't stop there. You know, our, our faith should continue to grow as we learn the scriptures and as we consider the incredible arguments that, that can support our faith. Our faith can be founded on facts if we'll take the time to go and examine Christian apologetics. And then we're equipped with a reasonable response regarding why we believe what we believe. Now, this is not to suggest that we must stop doing everything else in order to you know, learn every single apologetic argument that has ever been invented. That's not my point. And yet I do believe that every Christian ought to spend some time getting equipped so that we're able to deal with, at the very least, the most common arguments against our faith. If you've spent any time engaging in street evangelism or even talking with unbelievers at work or maybe family members, listen, it's the same basic arguments that keep coming up over and over and over again. For example, it's very common for unbelievers to question the inerrancy of the Bible, and rightly so. 
If there's no reason to believe in the inerrancy of the Bible, then why believe anything that's contained within, within the Bible? People will oftentimes insist that the Bible's filled with contradictions. And whenever I hear that, I'm, I'm quick to you know, open up my, my Bible app on my phone and say, find one for me, show me one. Rarely has anybody ever taken the Bible app and said, oh, here it is right here. <laughs> Typically, it's, well, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what they are. I'll have to get on a website that lists, you know, the hundred contradictions that somebody else found. Listen, I've read those lists. I've examined those lists. And I can tell you that there's no contradictions. There's paradoxical statements, things that are hard to understand, but... You know, anybody that will take some time to do a little investigation will discover that there are no contradictions. And it's real easy to refute those who insist that there are contradictions all throughout the scriptures. It's also common for unbelievers to dismiss the unique nature of the Christian faith by insisting that all religions are equally valid. You know, it's like, you know, blind men trying to explain the elephant. You know, and they, they give you these sorts of stories of, you know, well, this person's, you know, touching the trunk and says that the elephant is like a, like a garden hose. And, you know, they, you know they, they try to explain, you know, uh, well, we're all just, you know, we're all just blindly trying to, you know, grope our way towards God so that we can try to understand what he's like. Wrong. All religious systems contradict one another. So they've got a problem with contradictions in the Bible, but they don't have a problem with contradictions between religious systems. That's when contradictions are a-okay. This is silly. And it's not difficult to help them to see that their arguments really don't hold much water. It's also common for unbelievers to dismiss um, you know, the evidence for the resurrection, though they've never really considered the evidence for the resurrection. You know, a lot of times I've talked to people who deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then I ask them, have you ever looked at the evidence from the first and second century historians, and have you ever considered, you know, their historical reports, uh, you know, about all the events that transpired there in, in Jerusalem surrounding the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And rarely, if ever, have I ever found a person arguing against the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has taken the time to actually go back and look at all the evidence. And yet, you know, Josh McDowell's written an incredible uh, couple of books on the evidence that demands a verdict. And yet they continue to claim there's no evidence for the resurrection. Well, it doesn't take much for us to go and look at some of that evidence and then offer that up to those that we're trying to evangelize. It's not uncommon to find atheists here in Austin who insist that there's no such thing as God because, you know, science and all. And yet they fail to realize that if there is no God, then there's also no basis for the scientific method. But it's go, it goes right over their head until they actually find themselves face-to-face -face with a Christian who can actually address you know, their concerns or, or, or their, uh, their arguments for why they don't believe in the Christian faith. Listen, more often than not, these are the arguments that a Christian is going to face as we set out to share the gospel message. And so we really just need to zero in on the most common arguments, have a basic handle on what the argument is and, and, and how we address it, and then we can give a reasonable response to that person for why their argument against the Christian faith doesn't really make good sense. 
And so I encourage you to begin your study of Christian apologetics, if you haven't already, by taking the time to study the apologetic arguments that help us to defend our Christian faith against the most common arguments that, that we hear today. If you want to know more about what those common arguments are, you might come talk to me afterwards or you know, send me an email and I can send you some links and, and, and some information. We have to spend time studying the available resources, which are abundant. And as we do, we'll become those believers who are better equipped to share our faith. We'll feel more confident in our Christian faith. And the more confident we feel in our Christian faith, the more bold we are to engage with others as we accomplish the great commission of Jesus Christ. Those who study Christian apologetics are empowered with the knowledge that we need to offer reasonable explanations to those who are asking the tough questions, as well as those who are attempting to silence us with anti-Christian arguments. In this way, I believe we'll accomplish the Great Commission as we continue receiving the discipleship that we need to become bold believers who are sharing their faith. And, And not only that, but listen, we will become these bold believers who are able to accomplish the Great Commission of Christ knowing that we have the knowledge that we need to defend our faith. Sadly, though, there are many Christians who insist that Christian apologetics is a huge waste of time. There are. There, there are Christians out there who insist that Christian apologetics, that, that, that we shouldn't be out there arguing with people, and, and they often give the, the illustration of the, you know, the, the, the truth is like a lion. You know, just set it free and it will defend itself. That's, that's the argument of a lazy person who doesn't want to actually study Christian apologetics. That's all that is. The truth is like a lion. How's that working out here in this world? I mean, just, just look at the diminishing numbers of the Christian faith and the increasing numbers of other religious systems out there, uh, and, and namely wokeism. You know? I mean, look how many people have walked away from the church and walked into you know, some liberal you know, uh, church where, where woke ideas are being presented. Listen, we've been called to the Great Commission, and we've been called by the Apostle Peter to defend our faith against those who are, you know, are asking us to give a reasonable response to the hope that we have within us. The Christian who says that you know, Christian apologetics is, is, is a huge waste of time uh, would really have a hard time talking with me about that because I came to faith in Jesus Christ because somebody offered me apologetic arguments. Now, the apologetic arguments didn't save me. And yet, those arguments provided me with enough information to help me to see that the Christian faith is at least reasonable, and so I ought to consider the evidence you know, and, and, and that's exactly how I ended up taking that, that final step of faith. The evidence brought me to that final step where I said it makes sense to trust in Jesus Christ, and so I did. One of my arguments was, well, if the Bible is a history of time from the beginning of creation to the end of destruction, why don't we find dinosaurs in the Bible? Where, where are the dinosaurs? That's what I wanted to know, you know, all of Fred Flintstone. You know, I'm just kind of like, where's the big beef ribs? that turned my car over, you know. And it's interesting that the guy that led me to the Lord opened up to Job chapter 40, and he started reading a description of these two different critters called Behemoth and Leviathan. 
And, and as I'm listen, listening to this description, I'm just like, I mean, these are clearly dinosaurs. Why aren't they called dinosaurs? Well, the word dinosaur wasn't invented until much, much later, and the book of Job is one of the earliest books in the Bible, and so why would we expect Job to use a word that wasn't invented yet? But he does talk about Leviathan and Behemoth, and clearly these critters sound like dinosaurs. And I, my mind was just blown, and it just brought me to a place of realizing that uh, my arguments against the Christian faith weren't as solid as I thought. Gears started grinding, you know, I started realizing I needed to look further into this, and then he handed me evidence that demands a verdict by Josh McDowell, and just my mind continued to be blown by just all of the facts and evidence that supports the Christian faith. And all of that brought me to a place where I realized that the most reasonable decision that I could make is to, is to just trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what happened. Now, does everybody get saved because of apologetics? No. There's a lot of people who just hear the gospel message. It resonates with them. They know it's true. And they trust in Jesus and they're saved. Praise the Lord for them. But then there's a lot of people who need some evidence. They need good arguments. They need to reason it out. We ought to be ready to provide them with those reasonable answers to their questions. We're not going to argue anybody into the kingdom. And so that's not the purpose of Christian apologetics. No, instead we simply need to help people to see that the most reasonable decision that anyone could make is to repent of their sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go out then and, and preach the gospel so that we can accomplish the great commission of Jesus Christ. Let's study Christian apologetics so that we're equipped and ready to answer tough questions. And, and then when people challenge us, when they challenge our faith, let's give them those reasonable explanations for our faith in Jesus Christ as we present them with arguments, apologetic arguments, which will help them to see that our faith in Jesus Christ is the most rational decision that anyone can make. And in this way, we are able to then go and accomplish the great commission of Christ Jesus. Let's pray.